Thank you, Jay. Uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Second Samuel 23, starting at verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The Rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. He shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth, by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Starting in verse 1, we have what are called the last words of David, but they might be better taken as the last oracle. Or at the very least, you know, after this, he had departing words for Solomon, and they were recorded by other people. But this was probably his last written work. It reflects on the history of David's life, in some cases on the history of Israel before David, and it contains some uh, similar themes to Hannah's song, which is in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and it kind of makes these two poems something of bookends for the completed book of Samuel. The narrative of Samuel 1 and 2 derives forward from the beginning of Samuel's life and continues after he died to cover the lifetimes of King Saul and King David, and it progresses the revelation of King Jesus in the Old Testament. Second Samuel ends in chapter 24 with one more failure of David, but his faith is outlined in this poem, pointing us away from himself and toward hope in a king future to him. The, the, this last prophecy of David declares the life-giving nature of the ideal Messiah king that God promised would come through David's house. And we start with David himself in the first verse. Taken at face value, the introduction to this prophetic poem might seem as if David really likes to talk about himself. He does make four statements about himself, but if we look at these closer, they are statements where David is the object of God's goodness and generosity. David 
has been given enormous blessing from God throughout his life despite his shortcomings. Every description that he wrote exalts God if we know the background of David's life. And that's what we're going to just explore a little bit first is where David came from. First of all, he is the son of Jesse. So even the first line, it simply identifies David as the writer of these words, but it causes us to reflect where God called David to be the king of Israel. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, identifies David's father, Jesse. Jesse was the son of a man named Obed, who was the son of Ruth and Boaz. If we kept going through the ancestry of David, we would also find that Rahab the harlot was also in it. But simply focusing on the story of Ruth gives us insight to the incredible sovereignty of God in bringing Ruth and Boaz together. If you remember the story of Ruth, she was a Moabite woman that married into a family from the town of Bethlehem, and all the men of this family died, her husband, uh, her brother-in-law, and her father-in-law. But Instead of leaving Naomi, her mother-in-law, alone, she went back with her from Moab to Bethlehem, where she worked in the field of Boaz, not knowing that he would eventually marry her, redeeming her from a life of serving others to simply survive and take care of Naomi. God worked in Ruth's life to take her from a nation that was hostile towards Israel brought her into a new home, and supplied her with a new and prosperous family. And from that family came their son Obed, who brought Naomi new joy in life. Obed then was the father of Jesse, and Jesse had eight sons, the eighth son being David. And 1 Samuel 16 describes the humble beginning of David. After the failure of King Saul, the prophet Samuel was sent to find a new king somewhere within the town of Bethlehem under this pretense of holding a feast. Jesse's family was separated to Samuel by God, and all of his sons were brought before him except for David. David had to be summoned from the field where he was shepherding the family flock, and then he was revealed as God's choice to be king over Israel. Second, or 1 Samuel 16 says, And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. David is also the man raised up on high. That portion about the Spirit of the Lord being on David from that day forward, it leads us into this next line of the text where there is more information packed into it as well. The man raised up on high describes David as mighty. The word man could also be translated as mighty man or warrior. David's exploits and adventures began as a warrior from a young age, probably in his uh, late teens, middle to late teens. And as you all, all know about that victory over Goliath. But... He revealed to Saul, even before that, that as a shepherd, he fought a lion and a bear to save his father's sheep. He went on as king of Israel to fight enemies on all sides of Israel, including the Philistines, the Amalekites, Syrians, Moabites, ironically, since his grandmother was one, 
uh, Ammonites, Edomites, and Jebusites. Alongside his other mighty men, David survived Saul's multiple murder attempts. Try to say that five times fast. <laughs> Saul's multiple murder attempts took Jerusalem as the new capital of Israel and conquered more of the promised land for Israel than had been accomplished up to that time. There are multiple chapters of 1st and 2nd Samuel that describe the conflicts of, that David lived through. But we don't obviously have to go far from our text, if, if you know uh, the book of Samuel, to know how David became successful early in life. If you look back at the previous chapter, right at the end of it, right above where we just read, Second uh, Samuel 22, verses 47 through uh, 51, says, The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. David had his moments of pride and downfall in life, but it is obvious that he attributes all of the victory and success to the God that brought him out of the sheepfold to be anointed as king. Where our text says that he was raised up on high is referring to being lifted up to the highest possible position or lifted up to the heavens. Sometimes the word is translated to call God the most high. That word on high, it refers to God as the most high also. But David is not placing himself alongside God. He's not granting himself some kind of godhood. He is describing God's work in his life to bless him beyond his own expectations and abilities and rejecting the idea that he worked his own way to success. He's also called the anointed of the God of Jacob. David further recognizes God's work in his life by using the word anointed that we've said a few times already, but we haven't really addressed and I think most of you from years of, of uh, lessons and sermons in church, you know that anointed is the same as Messiah or Christ. The quote that we looked at from 1 Samuel 16 describes the act of anointing David with oil, which is a symbolic action to show him approved by God, set aside for the office of king. There are examples in the Old Testament of prophets and priests also being anointed as, their, as a part of their call to office, such as Elisha in 1 Kings 19 and Aaron in Exodus 28:41. Jesus, being the Christ, has the special role of fulfilling all three offices that are called out by anointed, anointing. God the Father sent him to live die and be resurrected for us and Jesus described his calling in Luke 4 where he sent or where he went to synagogue in, in Nazareth and he read the scroll of Isaiah in reference to himself 
uh, Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the heart brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim, proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus is the only person to ever hold all three offices that are anointed. David held two, being both king and prophet. As he references the fact that God anointed him, he specifically calls God the God of Jacob, specifically mentioning the patriarch Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes of Israel, who blessed Judah as the, as the tribe to have re, royal descendants such as David. David is also the sweet psalmist of Israel. As much influence as David had as king and warrior of Israel, he probably had the largest impact on the world as a songwriter. Anyone who has read the book of Psalms will notice that many of the superscripts say it is a psalm of David. There are 73 of the 150 psalms that are attributed to David, and two more are quoted in the New Testament to give credit to David. Credit for at least half of the National Songbook of Israel is a fairly outstanding achievement. To put that into perspective, consider that the book of Psalms, as we know it, was also arranged by Ezra after the split of the... Uh, Kingdoms of Israel and Judah, were, they were conquered by Assyria and Babylon, and that book has survived thousands of years right in the middle of the book that you hold now. These psalms are still used in Jewish worship as they, as they have been for thousands of years, and no doubt they have influenced the way that we think of songwriting and God himself. For example... Often we look to Psalm 23 at the passing of loved ones. It is a psalm of David that gives us comfort in the face of one of the most challenging times of our lives. It is through songwriting that David has been the vessel of God to enrich us theologically and give words to many of the things that we feel as Christians. Psalm 51 is a prime example of words to express when we have sinned against God. On my own, I, never would have, I would have never thought to write about asking God to give me herbs to throw up so I could be cleansed from the inside out. Psalm 51.7 says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. I want to say again that don't lose sight of the fact that David isn't claiming titles for himself. We have a whole lot of good that we can say about him, but he claims none of it aside from the goodness and blessing of God. We also have a whole lot of bad that we can say about David when he lost sight of God's blessing on his life. We all know the turning point of David's life when he sinned with Bathsheba. And if you recognize that, you'll see all of the repercussions that can that came on his family afterward, even on his deathbed with Solomon fighting his brother Adonijah for the throne. But as we move forward in the text, we're drawn to the source of David's songwriting. We look to God as he did. 
There's no doubt that David had skill in songwriting. But again, as if flowing from the line, the sweet psalmist of Israel, he wrote about the power of Yahweh in his work. As many lines that are dedicated to David recalling the history and successes that God gave him, he gives the same attention to crediting God with the words that poured from him in every psalm, but especially this one. The words of this one are leading us to the greatest truth of David's life, the promise that was given to him through the prophet Nathan. But he wants us to be assured that God is the source. The Spirit of the Lord is mentioned specifically using the name Yahweh or I Am that was given to Moses in the Sinai wilderness. The same God that called out to the first great leader of the nation of Israel from the burning bush now speaks through David, the God of the Passover and plagues upon Egypt, the Red Sea crossing of redemption, salvation, and preservation for Israel and a victory in the promised land. As Yahweh was with Moses' mouth and taught him what to say, now he is with David's, teaching him the meaning of what the ideal king looks like. The phrase, rock of Israel, gives us further indication that David had the events of Exodus in mind as he describes God probably in, having in mind that rock that God stood on and Moses struck it for water to come out while Israel was camped at a place called Rephidim. It indicates God's provision for Israel, for their survival in the wilderness, and also God's protection against enemies like the Amalekites that attacked Israel in the same place. The Amalekites being a foe that David was all too familiar with, having tracked them down to retrieve his family that they kidnapped. Most important to keep in mind regarding the source of this poem is that we are leading up to the theme of it. God is the one who taught David how to lead, sovereignly guiding the events of his life to teach him through experience, forcing him into situations that required him to grow as a leader and rely on God to provide for him through those situations. And that's one of the realities of our lives that I don't think that we often come to terms with. The fact that leadership of any kind is best taught by God and that the greatest leaders ever seen throughout history only came to power because God's hand was driving them forward, lifting them up to a place of authority. And then on the other side of that coin, where do leaders end up when our reliance on God is gone and our and selfishness invades our hearts. If you notice the way that I was speaking just now, I switched from talking about leaders of the past, them, to speaking personally of now, of us, because most adults have experience in leadership. Everyone here has some kind of leadership, I believe, that they've experienced in their life. Becca and I are currently experiencing the leadership of parenthood for the first time, learning the needs of our child and each other and how to fill that role. Becca's picked it up a lot faster than I have. Maybe I'll get some brownie points for saying that or just get kicked later for dragging her into this. In the role of parenthood or leadership of any kind, it's essential to rely on God or failure is inevitable. 
David's life, as we've said, is a prime example of this. His failure paved the way for the failure of at least three of his sons and the death of his firstborn child by Bathsheba. Failure in leadership brings more pain because of the impact that you have on others, but a good leader raises up others and brings collaborative success, and the ideal king goes beyond success, and he brings life itself. And that is where we look in the middle of verse 3 and verse 4 at the Messiah. This is the declaration of God through David that we've been leading up to the attributes of the perfect king. First of all, notice that this is not nation-specific. It is even broader than the title of king because it only says, he who rules over men. Any position of authority requires a person to be just, which includes all people if we go back to the original command from God for humanity. If you would, turn with me back to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read a couple of verses there. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 and 28. Again, this is the original command from God to all people. If I can pull apart the pages of this. Obviously, I don't use this Bible very much. My study Bible is a lot easier to get through. All right, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All of humanity is meant to have dominion over the earth, to treat it well, to harness it for food, and and to responsibly use it for its resources to build and live peacefully. Sadly, the state of our world is a testament to the fact that we as humans did not do this well. We don't do this well. We fight over resources. We push selfish agendas and take more than we need. Even when God directly supplied manna to Israel in the wilderness with guidelines to collect only what they needed for a day, some tried to hold back more for the next day. Miracles don't solve anything for people. Disobedience to the ways and the laws that God has laid out for us in his word Sin, in other words, has been our failure to live under God's authority and use the authority given to us to rule well on earth, which includes, again, all of us. So, back in the context of our text, none of us are the ideal king or queen. The perfect king is just, 
and he rules in the fear of God. He is perfectly obedient to God the Father. He lived perfectly under the law. He expounded it to his disciples, and he died at the hands of those who failed to be rulers in Israel. But the perfect king also gives life. The perfect king that God promised to come through the line of David, it says in our text, He shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining of the rain. That is a poetic description of the life that King Jesus brings to the people of his kingdom. He died at the hands of failures that claimed to be rulers, but proved his ability to give life by living again. He's the provider of life to his people, the ruler that is just and rules in the fear of God, teaching his people by his example to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Whether or not you are considered one of God's people, you are under the authority of King Jesus. His return has been promised And our use of the authority he has given to us will be judged just as sure as he will return. It was the plan of God for his son to be this ideal ruler from eternity past, and he is coming again. But he gave this insight to David through a covenant that we refer to as the Davidic covenant that is outlined in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But before we get to the covenant itself, David is referring back to that declaration of God in our text. Let's read it one more time. Uh, Just verse 5. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? Right in, right before we get to the to the actual covenant itself, like I said, he he puts this phrase in there where he says that his house is not so with God. But there are other translations that say, uh, "Is it not true my house is with God?" And I find either translation to be accurate. No king in David's line until Jesus was able to live up to the standard of being completely just and fearing God and certainly not life-giving. On the other hand, David's house has been ordered in all things and secure. His house is with God. So before we turn to 2 Samuel, just let me be clear that God made this covenant with David declaring that the Messiah King would come through the lineage of David. In that way, David's house is secure, and it is with God. On the other hand, no other king in the house of David or David himself could live up to the standards of God. So, with that in mind, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to read quite a few verses there. to get an idea of what this promise looks like. 2 Samuel 7, and we're going to start at verse 4. 
2 Samuel 7, verse 4. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up out of Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever have I, wherever I have moved about with all the, all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel when I commanded to, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took, from, took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more. As previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall... Build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And you can see from the wording that there are some places that can refer to, to normal sinful men like Solomon who would go on to build the temple, a house for God's name, but there is no other king than Jesus that can rule an everlasting kingdom. Obviously, Jesus does, did not and does not commit iniquity, but he was, as the prophet Isaiah said, wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's similar to the prophecy that Nathan gave to David. Only Jesus can be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the fulfillment of David's salvation and desire that he spoke of in this poem. Even without David being able to see the result of this unconditional covenant from God, he understands the security found in it, giving us a rhetorical question. Will he not make it increase? This is a promise made by God who is truth. Will he not make it good? In the final verses, on the other hand, 
we find the sons who could not have filled the prom- fulfilled the promise. They are the sons of rebellion, rebellion in verses 6 and 7. It says, But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron in the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Unfortunately for David, he probably had it in mind at least two of his sons that died in his lifetime, Amnon and Absalom. You might recall the horrific story of Amnon and Tamar from 2 Samuel 13. Amnon was David's oldest son and half-brother to Absalom and Tamar, who were full brother and sister. And Amnon was attracted to Tamar. I know. Black. But he was so driven by lust that he plotted a way to get her alone and then raped her. And after, afterward, we're told that Amnon hated Tamar with the same passion that he lusted for her. Obviously, she was traumatized. Absalom figured out what happened, and he hated Amnon. His anger seethed until eventually he killed Amnon, attempted to kill David, and later attempted to take the throne, and eventually was killed by David's general, Joab. This is what David's immediate household looked like following his example with Bathsheba. His older sons were probably old enough to understand what he had done when David took Bathsheba in adultery and killed her husband, Uriah the Hittite. These sons of rebellion followed after the dark side of their father, Amnon forcefully taking a woman for himself and Absalom taking a a life in attempt to right a wrong. It is a picture of sin that is all too clear. The consequences are devastating. Death is, is inevitable. And for everyone who does not turn from their sin and trust in the Son, in the son of God's promise to David, they shall be burned utterly with fire in their place. We take, we take for granted that sin causes the ruin of lives and families and earns death and hell for eternity. To conclude, this poem is a call to trust in the king that God promised to establish David's throne forever. As the Old Testament gave way to the New Testament, Jesus was revealed and we received the completed scriptures that we have now which are sufficient evidence that Jesus is the ideal king that brings life like a cloudless, clear morning. To put it poetically again, he will be like the sun as it comes over the horizon in the early morning, rays of light shining across the land, brightening the sky and driving the darkness of nighttime away, making everything visible. In the picture that David painted for us, the sky is blue and clear. There are no clouds to block out the sun as it gives its life-giving rays to the ground where there are blades of green grass budding from the dirt. 
Jesus is just ruling the fear of God, which in the fear of God, which also means that the sons of rebellion will be cast away. You must believe in the son of David. He is the only way to have the same salvation, security, and life that David wrote about. He is our example of how to exercise God's command of dominion on the earth, love toward him, and love one another.